You know, Rooted is the story of people who initiate a conversation, really. What they say is, I don't have everything figured out, but I, there's something about God that's intriguing me, something about Jesus I have questions about, and I want to be in a, in a place where I can ask those questions and wrestle with some big stuff in my life, and um, there's been nothing more transformational for our church than the Rooted experience in terms of um, getting people together, sharing about where their life really is, being able to talk about the stuff that really matters in their life with people um, that, like even the video said, that kind of surprised them that actually are kind of in the same place. And so uh, if you're a person either looking to get connected or you're looking for a next big step in your own sort of walk with Jesus and you want to know what that is, Rooted is the best first next step for, for you for sure. Better than anything else we've got going, better than anything we've ever seen as far as our church goes. So glad that you guys are here. Welcome. I, I am, uh, I'm really excited. This is one of my favorite weekends of the year. You know, this is the second year in a row we've done this the week after Easter. And uh, what I mean by this is... Um, Swimming. Uh, so uh, is actually having baptisms. And baptisms is like, it, it is it's so much fun. There's, there's very few things that really actually depict um, what actually happens in someone's spiritual life better than a baptism. It is the best depiction of like, this is what it means to walk with Jesus. And it is, it's powerful. It's surprising. Some of you are like, that's, that's their baptismal? I mean, that's it? That's, that's, how's that going to be powerful? Like, I got one of those in my backyard. Um, and my HOA keeps telling me to deflate it and put it away because it's so ugly. I, I get that. Um, but here's what, I, uh, here's what I want to tell you. My guess is that some of you who are here, obviously some of you are family members. You came to watch people who have decided to make that decision. Um, my guess is some of you, <laughs> against your better judgment and against your, your hairdo or whatever else, you might decide today, you're like, I don't care. I'm doing this too. And you're going to be surprised that it's you because some of you right now are going, I'm not doing that. But you may make a decision. At the end of the day, you might go, I actually want to do this. And, you know, we actually will give you a t-shirt. I know. So yeah, you get a t-shirt. I mean, it's not real commemorative. It doesn't say I got baptized today and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. There's nothing clever on it. It just is a shirt. But we don't want anything to be in the way. I'll get to that towards the end of, this, of the message. But I'm very excited. This is one of the coolest things we do, and it is very, very fun. So I'm excited about that. Uh, it's a great Sunday to be a Mariners. If you are with us last week, or maybe you've been with us before, you've heard us say this phrase a lot. And, and this, is, this is no more true than ever than today. But it's just this simple statement. We say it a lot around here, which is, we do not have it all together. <laughs> if you're looking for a church of people that either have it all together or have all the answers, that's not, that's not us. Um, we are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be transformed by him. And we're looking for a way to, to love other people the way that Jesus has modeled and demonstrated and called us to do. And none of us does that perfectly either. So if you're looking for that kind of place where people are doing their best to figure out where God might be leading them, you're in the right place. Um, so I'm very excited about today. Let's pray and we'll, we'll get into today's uh, message, new series. Very cool. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we have um, so much to be grateful for. Every week we make it a point to try to remember that it is you to whom we can be grateful. Father, there are, there are so many things for which we can just pause. Even in the most dire circumstances in our lives, we can still pause to say thank you. Jesus, we acknowledge today that it is you who wipes slates clean. It is you who picks us up and we can no longer do anything else. It is you, Father, who dusts us off and it is you who gets us started again. Father, we need your help. Life is hard. We encounter real pain and it is beyond our ability to handle it. We have big questions and big confusion and Jesus, we just need you. So Father, for just a moment, we pause. Pause that you might speak to us in stillness and in silence we might acknowledge our need for you and that you might bring to the surface your intention, Father, to love us and to reset us, to restart us, and to give us a new take.
Father, in everything that we consider today, might your intention to love us, to rebuild us, and to continue rebuilding us be made known, and might that be made clearer today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, when you came in, you got a bulletin in there as an outline. If you want to pull that out, kind of follow along. Everything you need will be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, take notes. I'm kind of a furious note taker. Um, if you want to do that, great. If you want to follow along in your Bible um, and you, know, you don't want to use an outline, we'll be in the super thrilling chapter of Leviticus 25. So if you've ever read your Bible and read Leviticus, you'll know how exciting that part of the Bible is. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, as we do that, as you're kind of getting situated, getting ready, um, I, I just want to ask you a question. And this is just a kind of a, um, a you know, show of hands kind of question. How many of you guys had one of the two or both of these things? Uh, an Atari 2600 or an original Nintendo Entertainment System? Just real, real quick, show of hands. Okay, a lot of us really wasted a lot of our childhood in front of a television screen. Man, the Atari had hooked up to the antenna hookup. Remember that? You had to like figure out how to get that thing hooked up to the VHF. I mean, I remember all that stuff. Uh, I, but I, there's this, and there's a lot of, there's, there's very few similarities between the two things, if you actually were to consider that. I mean, you know, I had an Atari. I didn't have a Nintendo. All my friends had it. My mom was like, we're not doing that. I watched what happened to you playing Atari. But it was just worlds apart. I mean, the Atari, I remember the, the, the Pac-Man game. You guys remember the Pac-Man game? It was just like the real Pac-Man at the arcade sounded awesome. It had colors and everything else. And the Atari one was just waka, waka, waka. And the, the game, I mean, the, the, the arcade, it was like waka, waka, waka. And it had all these cool sounds and all this stuff. And the, the one, waka, waka. And it was like, and I thought this is the greatest thing ever. There was like two colors on the screen at one time. And then Nintendo came out and it was like, seven or eight colors on the screen at one time and there was like music all that like you know cheesy midi kind of music that was just so goofy that was but it was like this is the coolest thing ever now both of the both of these things both the atari with its fake wood paneling in the front if you guys remember the fake wood paneling put in front of it there's this brand new digital device with its cartridges that you just had to like slam and every time it didn't work you as if we all knew that was what saved it you put it back in there and slam it and then whatever but <laughs> it's like that was like built into the like technology. If it doesn't work, blow on it and then hit it. And that should do it. But both of the two systems had something in common. They both had built into them this knowledge that was built into the hardware of the system itself. That there will be a time when everything goes haywire, when everything that you're looking at, and no matter of blowing into the cartridge or punching the machine or resetting the antenna, little hookups in the back will make a difference. There's one thing you're going to have to do, and both the Nintendo and the Atari had it. It was this one thing right here. Next to the power button, built into the hardware, was this button, the reset button, which meant no matter what happens, no matter what's going on, there's going to come a time when this system will fail you because you will use it for too long. Because you will make this thing so hot, you could literally warm a small cabin with it. <laughs> and there will be times where you, young person, which was me, you know, all of us did this, where you will try to be playing a video game, and you will be moments away from saving the princess, and you will put it on pause, and you will go outside and play with your friends. Hopefully, you'll tear yourself away long enough. To, or your mom will make you go to bed, or she'll make you do the chores you were supposed to do so long ago because there's no save button here. You can't save your progress. You can only pause your progress. And so you're going to have to leave this thing on. And eventually, in order to save a meltdown, while, while everything's falling apart on this thing, you're going to have to press this button. That things have gone so crazy 
as you've played this for so long that you're going to have to press this. We know this is going to happen, Nintendo says, so you're going to need this button. We are people built into our own lives who need that button. There is a place in which God has put into our own lives, into our very own hardware, a button, a reset button. And the reset button comes at a cost. Because no matter how far you've gotten, and no matter how much progress you've made, when you hit the reset, you have to give up a hold on those things. And there's no guarantee that you get it back. But if you don't, you risk melting down the entire system. Built into our own hardware, God has built us with an intentional reset. We just don't like to use it. I have a friend, I wrote about it this week in our little compass note, you might have seen it. A friend of ours recently, we were, sitting in, we were sitting in her kitchen, and she has four kids, and we have three kids, and we're, you know, we're talking about stuff. They're, her kids are all about the same age as ours, and so everybody's kind of doing their activities, and all our kids are now at an age where everybody's doing something, and they all have practice at eight different fields, like, across, across the United States, it feels like, you know, between here and, like, Louisiana, someone has a practice, and we got to, like, drive them somewhere, and we're all looking at each other, how do we make this? And, and she, says, she says this with utter seriousness. And with full enthusiasm, as if all of us would agree with this statement, she says, don't you guys, with a smile on her face, don't you guys wish, I mean, like, don't you guys wish you could just, like, be in a coma for three weeks? <laughs> well, what? She goes, no, I'm really serious. Because that way, she's saying this with, like a smile, as if, she's saying it as if all of us would want this. I mean, I'm serious. Like, don't you just wish? Because I just want people to solve their own problems for a little bit. I don't, I, I don't know what to do. I, don't, I just don't think I can take it anymore. And I just, need, I just need a break. Now, she's looking at us like this is, of course, something all of us have longed for. I'm like, that's a really serious medical trauma. She's like, I know. Wouldn't it be great? <laughs> no, that's horrible. Now, what she's actually saying, now, uh, how many of you have said this phrase before? This is a little bit, this is on the degree of, like, seriousness. How many of you have ever said, you know, I, I really just need a vacation? Right now, you're like, right now, give me one. <laughs> Tell me there's a special prize today or something like that. There's not. <laughs> but a lot of us say we need a vacation because what we're actually saying is, I feel like the system is about to overload. I feel like I'm about to burn out. And I just need to get away from everything for a little bit so that I can reset my life. Talking to my friend, she says it this way. Maybe you can connect with this idea. I thought this was incredibly telling the way she said it. She said it this way. I don't want to dodge my responsibilities. I don't want to make excuses. I just don't know how much longer I can sustain this. How do you kind of connect to this feeling a little bit? It's not real like, not like a yes, it's more like a yeah, I think that's me. As I'm talking to more and more people, you know, as I listen to folks, even in our, in some of our rooted leaders who will tell us things about where people are feeling, this is not that uncommon of a statement in some frame or another. Whether it's a mother or a father or it's someone's brother or it's a student or it's someone who's single, or it's someone who's feeling the pressure of the workplace, or someone who's feeling the pressure of academics, whatever it is, it's this, however you might phrase this, this phrase comes up a lot. And people, while they might not want a coma to solve their problem, they just don't know how to do, they don't know how to get away from this kind of life. 
I find out that more people than not either have been or are presently in a situation where they go, I wish there, there, was, there are some things that I have control over my life that I don't know how to break, break away from. I wish I could. That is the essence of this series. That every single one of us, in some way or another, I mean, who hasn't felt like that at some point, but the essence of us, the essence of us, this is the series, I should say, is that for the next few weeks, we're going to look at this idea that all of us are longing for a reset. Every single one of us. The trouble is that most of us don't really know how to do it, and we're afraid that if we do, we'll lose everything. There's a fear about a reset that every single person in this room feels, including me. God, it turns out, is really intent on being the God who resets things. And he has built into us, into our very own hardware, a way for us to reset. And the truth is that almost all of us have a very difficult time embracing the idea of a reset. Now, where you get a very clear picture of this is in, the, like I said before, the super thrilling chapter of Leviticus, chapter 25. Now, before I get into that, you have to understand this is part of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or what we call the Old Testament. And it is part of what's called the Torah, which just roughly translated, often poorly translated, is the word law. But really, what be- it gets better translated as like guidance. The way in which God gives to his people who have been newly freed out of Egypt, when he gives his people this, this, this Torah on Mount Sinai to Moses, he gives to them a way in which to live as free people. They've lived for 400 years in slavery, and they don't know how to live as free people. And the way that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, understood... The way that they understood the Torah wasn't simply this is how you live so that you can, you know, you can earn something, although that was kind of part of it. More so it was this. This is how God's people live as free people. You don't know how to live freely. You only know how to live as slaves. Let me show you how to live as my uniquely freed people. Now, this law was given to them after they were free, not before. In other words, they didn't earn their freedom by following laws. The laws were given to them as a way to live as God's freed people. It's really important you catch this because there's so many like, provisions and laws and stuff like that. So, now I want to show you God's first big picture of a reset, and it's like crazy. Okay, check this out. Leviticus 25, 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses from Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, if you remember, in the very beginning of the Bible, if you've ever heard this before, there's, God creates everything in six days. On the seventh day, he does what? Rest. Good. Very good. Good job. You get an A+. I heard you say that. You win. Okay? Now, on the seventh day, God rests, and he makes that day holy. So there's a rhythm already initiated in all of creation in which people will do stuff on six days. And on the seventh day, they're supposed to rest. And the, the truth is, as you kind of figured, we'll talk more about Sabbath as we get further on in the series. But I just want you to catch, there's a rhythm. Six days of creating or working, and a, and a seventh day of rest. Now, in this case, what he says is, there is the land itself, creation itself, has to rest. Verse 3. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards, and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. Don't sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Now, in an agrarian culture, agrarian means like farming culture. In an agrarian culture, when you say the land takes a rest, you're saying that everybody in the whole land also takes a rest. So there's a day, there's a day in which people rest, and now what's being described is a whole year of rest. Keep on reading. 
Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest, as if people didn't catch it the first time. God has to, God has to say it again. Don't do stuff. Just wait around. Verse 6. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, male and female servants, and for the hired worker, temporary resident, who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. This is, ever, this is it. This is all you get. Whatever God gives you, whatever's there in the land, that's what you get to eat. This rhythm of six plus one, that's six days and now and a seventh and a seventh day of rest, now goes on to years. There's six days of work. In the sixth year, presumably, you would have enough to last for the seventh year, which means God will give you enough in that sixth year to last the seventh year. Now, this is like for us, for a lot of us, like one day of like doing nothing the whole idea is like unbelievably like setting one day apart just to be a rest day is insane ask any parent who has a kid who plays a club sport they're like yeah i wish i got that rest i'm spending most of my time driving and you know and then like dealing with going to denny's for breakfast and then going to carl's jr for lunch and it's just like i don't know i don't know if i understand the idea of a day of rest now that's what's being told here is this is a whole year and this is a ridiculous notion. And what we tend to do is we look at this, we look at the time. For, for all of us in our lives today, with the amount of craziness we have, that the amount of time in which we say, I wish I could be on a vacation, or worse, I wish I could be in a coma, we look at this and we go, well, it was a different time then. They had to have their fields lay fallow for a year because they didn't do crop rotation, so they had to just lay, I get that, but you know, that's a different time. What we tend to do is we look back and we go at the Bible time, so to speak, and we go, you know, that's just different. It's different for them. They don't know the pressure I have of my life and my job. They just don't get it. It's a different time. The truth is that historically, everybody had a hard time with this. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it and go, well, these people obviously obeyed this stuff because the times were different. When you read it a little bit more carefully, what you actually get is a picture of God's people who are like, I'm not sure that they're all that much different. Now, granted, it's a different culture and different time and different language and all kinds of things, agrarian culture, all that stuff. But I want you to get to the basic nature of human beings is still kind of the same. Look what it says in Ezekiel chapter 20. God's speaking through the prophet Ezekiel here. Also, I gave them my Sabbath as a sign between us. This is what you, one of the, the things that makes us uniquely bound together so they would know that I, the Lord, have made them holy. Keep on reading. Now, check this out. Yet the people of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not follow my decrees, but rejected my laws, by which the person who obeys them will live. In other words, laws and freedom kind of go together, having a full life. And they utterly desecrated my Sabbath. Now what's interesting you have to catch is this. The Sabbaths are part of the law, and yet there's somehow, there's something about them uniquely separated among all the laws, meaning there's not just disobeying the laws, but the Sabbaths themselves. In other words, what what, this is a statement that says, when people aren't following the Sabbaths, which says, I don't trust God to provide. And again, we're going to talk more about this in future weeks. But I want you to catch that there is a rhythm, there is a reset button that God has given to people that they continually say, I'm not going to do this. In other words, human beings have a hard time obeying a commandment which says, stop working. There's this Sabbath year, this description of this kind of rest. And then it gets crazy. What you're about to read is going to be even crazier. Now check this out. 
Verse 8, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. So that's 49 years, right? So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years, okay? Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. So you're, you're with me. The day of atonement is called Yom Kippur. Maybe you've heard of that holiday. This is the day of atonement. We'll talk more about that another week. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all its inhabitants. So now here's what's happening. You've just had the 49th year where people have done nothing except rely on the land to provide for them. On, the, on this day of atonement, the next year, the 50th year, blow the horn and then have another year where you do the same thing and proclaim liberty. This is a declaration of something called the Jubilee, which is for everybody to be set free. So we'll read more about this later on, but I want you to catch this. Here's the basic gist of it. Anybody who owes you money, set them free from debt. Any person who is, who is what you, they had indentured servitude, which means if you, if you couldn't pay, you just could work off the, what you owed. If you're trapped in bondage, because you can't pay debts, those people go free. If you own land that belongs to another family, that, money, that, fa- that land goes back to that family. Everybody gets to be freed up. That's the jubilee. Now, it comes at a cost. This is a giant, whole nation kind of reset. Now, it's in this picture, this whole idea, this whole 50th year, this pro- proclamation of liberty. You get this phrase. People start using this phrase. You hear it a lot. This is the year of the Lord's favor. You hear this every so often as you read the Bible, the year of the Lord's favor. And it gets used interchangeably. There would be this overwhelming sense of God's goodness and his provision. Check this out. Here's just some further. It shall be a jubilee year for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan, your own family, the, the, your, the fatherhood of your household, your family. 11. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Don't sow and don't reap what grows itself or harvest the untended vines. For it's a jubilee. It's to be holy for you. Eat only what's taken directly from the fields. Holy, just in other words, it means it's set apart. It's unique among all the years. And that every 50 years, the whole land, no matter what anybody owes, resets. Now, this is such a radical idea. It's actually interesting. You look at the historical record. There's not a whole, there's actually just debate among the historians and theologians about whether or not people in this time actually even practice this. There's this sense about, well, it was almost some people, some scholars will say, it's just an idea. People were always shooting for it. Other people will say, well, there's some evidence they actually practiced this, you can see. But it's not 100% clear that people actually wanted and followed, on, followed along with this kind of whole life, whole land kind of reset. But the idea is this. God intends to give people a reset. God intends to give people a freedom from things that have kept them captive and enables them to live free. You have to understand, when you talk about reset, it's always a reset from something to something else. It's not just a reset from something into nothing. When you ask people about freedom, more often than not, what they say is, well, freedom is just being able to do whatever you want. That's not the biblical definition of freedom. I was talking to my son, who's 11, the other day. He just, you know, he, because he knows, I'm, he knows I'm the pastor, so he's like, Dad, I just feel like you should know some stuff about what's going on. I'm like, well... You're not the only person who tells me that stuff, buddy. I get a lot of people who email me. I just want you to know, in the name of Jesus, here's some people who are doing some stuff. No, But he goes, yeah, I want to let you know about some stuff, Dad. He goes, I, I want you to know what kids really want. I'm like, oh, really? He goes, yeah, you know what they really want, Dad? They don't want all the rules, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's like, 
We just want to be able to do what we want instead of having all these people tell us what to do all the time. That's what we want, Dad. Wow, I never would have thought that's what you want. That's, that's, that's not freedom, son. That's Lord of the Flies. Okay? I go... I don't think that's really what freedom is. I go, well, let's go. I'll, let, I'll, you know, I'll bring it up at our next staff meeting. Okay, but he says, thank you. <laughs> but freedom isn't simply, remember, this is this jubilee year, this great reset, isn't simply just we're able to do whatever we want. The freedom that's being described here is freedom something to something else. It's not simply being able to say I have nothing and I can do whatever I want. It's saying I have nothing that makes me a slave. That's freedom. Now, whatever it is that these people face who have been under slavery for 400 years, as you get this, as you, you know, the beginning started, you know, God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is the same place where Moses gets the Ten Commandments. You know, Moses is up there hearing from God for a long period of time. And God's saying to him, your people, whom I've heard their cry, those people, they don't know about freedom. They only know about slavery. They only know how to live as slaves. And they don't know how to live as God's free people. And then here's what, it, what you find out. That God's intention to free them isn't simply just to nothing out of Egypt into the desert. It's to give them something, to give them an identity, to do something. Here's what it says in Exodus. This is when God speaks to Moses. This is like, this is God speaking to Moses right here. It says this. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is before he rescues them. I'm the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you. This just means set free with an outstretched arm, and with mighty acts of judgment. Now listen to this. This is the epitome of what it means to be free in the mindset of someone rescued by God. This is, the, this is what God intends for his people to understand freedom to be. Verse 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That's the freedom he intends for his people to have. That they would have an identity, that they would belong to God, and they would have this relationship in which they go, you and I, it's us, we're in this together. Continuing on. Then you will know when you understand that I am, you're my God. I mean, you're my people and I'm your God. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from, the, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You will be my people. I will be your God. And then you will know that you're free. Continuing on. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I'm the Lord. Now what these people are running away from, and as a slave, you have no identity. They're given this sense, this they're given a father, and they're, giving an, they're given a name and an identity. No longer are they wandering around, wondering as they're, if they're orphans. They're being, they're being rescued from slavery and identity-less, identitylessness, namelessness. They're being given a father where they can call their own, they get to be called children. God often refers to Israel as his own son. And then there's this other thing where he promises this, them this inheritance, a life that is different, a wholeness, a picture of freedom that they get to have, an inheritance in a land and a place they get to call their own. Not just a vast expanse of freedom, but they get to have an identity and a home. The Bible is a story of God's ongoing work of bringing people from exile, slavery, to home, to freedom, to identity. It's to liberate people from all things, whether they're good or they're bad, that might be their master. This is God's effort. This is what God does. We're going to talk about this in future weeks, but the idea here is this. There are so many things that we long for in our lives, things that we pray that we receive, things that we hope, whether it's our, a future for, like it's a home and a family, 
or it's a job, or it's a relationship, or it's a getting into that college, or whatever else it is, and we realize that is actually these great things that have been given to us turn from gifts into becoming our own slave masters, and we start going, wow, I wonder how we wound up getting everything we could have wanted and becoming a slave to it. You see, there's this question we have to wrestle with when we start talking about a reset, which is this. What is it that is keeping you a stranger, an orphan, or a slave? God's intention for you is not to be someone who says, I'm just moments away, that's right, I'm moments away from having a total, I'm, I'm moments away from blacking, I'm moments away from burning up my entire life, I'm moments away from a meltdown, because you were not intended to live as a slave, to live in exile from yourself, from your family, from other people. You were intended to live as a free person. That's the story of God in the Bible. It isn't the story of people trying to work their way to impress God. It is God continually coming at us and going, I want to give you freedom from a life which has, have, which has you trapped. You don't have to live like that. The trouble for us is we just don't believe it. You know, for me, as I think about some of this, one of the things is I, I just as I'm, considering this whole series of scope of the next couple of weeks, one of the things that just captured my own head is I have a very strange relationship with anxiety. I hate it. It makes me lose sleep. I usually don't sleep very well on Saturday nights because I'm thinking about my message. I get started right before I go to bed and then I just keeps on going and right around 2 a.m. I'm like, I think I got it. Close my eyes and at 2.30 I wake up going, nope, I got to go through it again in my head. And I think to myself, and there are times, there are very rare moments where I go to bed on Saturday night and I sleep all the way through, and I wake up in a panic, like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not terrified. What happened? I need, I need the terror. I need something, there's something, I miss it. It's like my friend. <laughs> I need it. <laughs> and of course, it, it finds me. Here I am. <laughs> I'm here. I'm right here. <laughs> You're welcome. I mean, it's, it's right back with me again. I think for a lot of us, our relationship with the anxiety or stress that we feel in our lives is one in which we kind of actually have this abusive relationship with it, which we say, I need it. I want it to go away, but I, 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 I just, there's part of me, it's one of the only ways, I'm honest, one of the only ways I actually feel <laughs> like I'm alive. What is wrong with us? We're longing for a year of jubilee, a hope for a great reset that God would accomplish in our lives, and yet we're so terrified of it at the same time. The culminating work of God's work of freedom, his liberty-giving freedom in the Bible is the person of Jesus who comes to bring about this kind of freedom. Check this out in Luke chapter 4. Jesus says this. Or Jesus does this. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into a synagogue as was his custom. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just been out in the wilderness being tested by, you know, by the devil. This is the kind of bizarre story where he's out being tested about whether or not he'd give up his own role as the rescuing son of God to follow, really, the devil. He doesn't. And then he comes into his own hometown. He goes into the temple and begins to start, or the synagogue and begins to start teaching. He stood up to read. And the scroll, verse 17, of the prophet, prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He's reading out of Isaiah 61. Here's what he says. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind and set the oppressed free. This is what's called a jubilee text in the Bible. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, everybody at that point would have gone, what? 
Are you, okay, so what are you going to say about this? Because everybody at the time is waiting for this, this, there's like this mega jubilee in which when God sends his guy, the Messiah, to rescue everybody, it won't just be an every 50 year kind of thing. It will be an eternal kind of thing. And Isaiah 61 is pointing to this idea and Jesus reads this passage out of Isaiah 61 and then he does this. Then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This would have stunned the audience. They would have gone, what? So the Romans, are they put down their weapons? The, all, of the, all of Israel is restored. All the exiles are brought home. There's an end to any kind of exile we might feel or know. And then he put, he just says, this is the end. It's here. It's fulfilled today. And then he does this. Oops, sorry. I jumped ahead a little bit. Then he goes and sits down. That's the end. He just goes and sits down. And they're like, what? And then they try to kill him. They actually try to throw him off a cliff. <laughs> they're like, no, 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 that's crazy. And he just, however Jesus does it, he like, it just says he walks through the crowd without being thrown off a cliff. However he does it. I don't know. I'm Jesus. You know, whatever. They just avoid him. But their intention is, you can't be this person. You can't claim these things because you're just Joseph's son. You're just, you're, we know who you are. You, that can't be you. And yet, he says, this is the end of all of that exile. Because what then, the only way this sort of makes sense is if the exile he's talking about is different than the one they expected. They're talking about an exile in which they're under, the, under Roman oppression. And what Jesus begins to sort of illustrate, which will get later picked up in the Bible, is that what Jesus intends to do is to give people a reset, an end of an exile, not just from actual physical exile but from the slavery of the most sinister thing in anybody's life which is sin and evil but not only would they be freed up from these other things but they would be freed up from the sin and evil in their life the one thing that has the most sinister grip on their lives so jesus we celebrate this at easter that jesus would take on all of the sin of the world onto himself put it to death on the cross and that he would prove victorious by rising again from the grave so that there would be victory for people and that there would be this one, there would be a one-time moment of victory over all sin forever, and yet there would also be the ongoing work of God in people's lives. Here's how the Apostle Paul writes it, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here, meaning the exiled life, this old dead self is gone, is gone. God, verse 21, God made him, meaning Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is this beautiful picture in baptism, which is what this is, in which people celebrate and identify. There is an old life that once was that is put to death and a new life that is come. Paul continues on in the next chapter. He says it this way. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, quoting again the Hebrew Bible, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. This is the Apostle Paul. And this is talking to the early church. Now is the day of salvation. Now, salvation is a weird word. It has been so muted by our culture and like our fear of church words. You know, it's like one of those words that like kind of like um, repent or like, I don't know what the church is saying when I say that word anymore. But the word salvation just simply means this. An end of the exile. And Paul's saying, for people, you guys, you belong to Jesus. This is the end of the exile. Let's celebrate what that looks like. This is the, the, this day, the ultimate reset. This day of God's favor has finally come. It's in Jesus. If you just wanted to, if you're just curious about all this stuff, just do a study on your own. 
search on the computer, go find the phrase in Christ or in Jesus in your Bible. Just look at all of what it means to be someone who walks with and understands the ultimate reset in Jesus. Now, for centuries, the way this is publicly displayed is in, is in, the, is in the work of baptism. Bapti- baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which means simply to immerse or to submerge. Now, I was trying to explain this to my daughter. She's like, what is baptism all about? I don't totally get it. I go, do this with your hand. You guys can do this too real quickly. Put your hand out like this. Okay? Now, <clears throat> all, I, I was like, now, t- try to describe what Jesus, to tr- describe Jesus on the cross. She's like, okay. So she just keeps her hand up. Like, this is Jesus on the cross, right? She goes, yep. And then I go, now, what happens? What happens when people get buried? She goes like this. I go, okay, so everybody do that. Right? This is buried. Now, describe what happens three days later. He rises again. Okay? Now, if you were to describe baptism, someone stands, or in our case, kneels in this super expensive pool. <laughs> they, stand, they stand or they kneel in the pool. They are, as the Bible says, buried with Christ in baptism, meaning putting to death an old life and raised to walk in a new life. That's what the Bible describes. Now, a couple of things I want to clear up. We're going to do this in a second. I'm going to put this on display. Where people are saying, God has reset my life, and he's continuing to do so. Now, a couple of things. Some people ask the question, you know, I was baptized when I was like a, an infant. I don't remember it. My mom or my dad held me under some, you know, some official of the church, and they sprinkled some water on me, and that was it. Does that count? Well, yes and no. Here's why. Here's why. We, don't do, we don't do infant baptisms at our church. We do something called the baby dedication, which is to say, we believe that God has uniquely put a responsibility on parents and the church to raise kids to follow Jesus. An infant baptism is exactly the same thing, really it's just simply saying we, we want our kid and believe our kid to walk with and understand and know what God has done for them in their life. But here's the deal. We believe that the baptism is done by people who believe and understand and know the decision that they're making. So we, this is why we do what's called believer's baptism. It's just simply a way it says, I already believe this and so I'm going to do this. Now, if you are a person who goes, well, I've already done it. I can't do it now. I, it's, I'll, it, will, it will dishonor my parents. It won't dishonor your parents. Because here's why. The hope of your parents when they baptized you as a kid is that you would one day make a decision to follow Jesus with your life. All you're doing is affirming their decision with your adult life or your older kind of life. It isn't a, dis, it isn't a disrespecting. It's an affirmation of what they've already done for you and believe for you. Oftentimes, because so many people are baptized as little kids, we have the belief that it's like for the kids. It's not just for the kids. If you've been baptized before as someone who already believes and follows Jesus, you don't need to do it again. You don't have to like re-up it. You know, it's not like a once a year, like one of those wax polishes you put on your car and it's like, I guess I should do it again. It's not that. It's a one-time symbol. The ongoing symbol we have in which we remember what Christ has done and that Jesus will come again, all that, that's in communion. Baptism is a way of publicly declaring, I once was one way, God has transformed me, and the trajectory of my life has completely changed, and I'm now walking in a new way. And the picture is literally of people dying and rising again. That's that's the picture. And that's why people are submerged. It's what that actually means. Now, it is a way in which you say, I'm not, it doesn't make you a person who's a Christian. It doesn't make you someone who's, it's not like, once I was not a Christian, now I am. That's not how it works. It's declaring what has already happened in your life to a public community and saying, I walk with you, we are in this together. It's my decision to walk with Jesus. It doesn't, it's not for perfect people. It's for people who have decided to let God aim their life in a way they never would have otherwise done. Now, we're going to have some baptism. It's going to be awesome. Okay. Now, we're going to pray. The band's going to come up here. We're going to get this thing started. 
and just participate by singing and observing and being a part of the service. Don't leave. It's not like, oh, I got baptism. I'm ready to go out to get a cup of coffee. No, no, no. Stay and respond with us. Don't miss this. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you have offered to us a continual reset in our lives, that we're not simply bound to be the way that we are now forever. Jesus, we're grateful that you have found a way in which to rescue us beyond our own power, beyond our own ability. We're grateful, Father, for this symbol of baptism. We're grateful that you have given it to us. Jesus, I know there are people in the room who have never thought they should ever be baptized or they missed their window. And yet, Jesus, we know that people make decisions as adults to be baptized all the time. Father, for, the, for, the, for people who would decide to do this today, might you in some way, Father, get a hold of their heart, affirm in them this decision, this courageous decision to make this known? Might this be a great declaration of the work that you have done and are continuing to do? And so, Jesus, would you move mightily as we sing, as we pray, and as we participate in this most sacred and beautiful thing in baptism? So, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Now, some instructions. If you want to do this, and you're like, I got to do this, just go over where that crowd of people is in that area over there. So it's to your right, all the way over there. Some folks over there. There's even little, like, changing tents. Literally, it's like a little hut we, we have set up over there you can change. If you are like, I don't have, I, don't, I didn't bring anything. I just did my hair. I did it another time. No, no, don't wait. That's the dumbest excuse ever, okay? Don't tell someone I didn't get baptized because I didn't want to ruin my hair or my silk blouse or whatever. I don't know if people wear blouses or silk or anything. But whatever. But if that's you, that's a dumb reason. Just want to tell you right now, God's bigger than your, like, wet shirt. We'll give you a t-shirt, okay? Now, um, come over here and see those folks. They're going to talk to you. Just ask you a few questions about, are you sure you want to do this? And why do you want to do this? That kind of stuff. Real quickly. It's not like a long interview. It's not like, a, you know, it's just like a, tell me why you want to do this. And they'll you tell them. But you can do that. You don't have to wait. You don't have to schedule an appointment. You just come over and we'll do it. We'll take care of it today. All right? So let's, you want, do we want to stand? Do we want to do? Do we want to stand? Let's all stand. Let's all stand. Let's just.